We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We are joined this week by someone I have long been eager to have here on the show. He is the 2006 Swedish national champion. He's represented Sweden in many Olympiads and international competitions. He's a renowned trainer and author, best known for the Mastering Chess series, Mastering Chess Strategy, Mastering Opening Strategy, Mastering Endgame Strategy. They're fantastic puzzle compilations uh, for intermediate to advanced players. Uh, He's a popular lecturer for the U.S. Chess School. You can find those archives online. He creates content for Chess.com as well, and he is now joining us. Welcome, Grandmaster Johan Helston. How are you, Johan? Hi, Ben. Good morning, Uh, and uh, very pleased to be here. Thanks thanks a lot for uh, inviting me. It's a big pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, excited to have you. You know, you've been on... Your books have been recommended on this podcast so many times. I remember... Uh, you know, well-known American trainer here in the U.S., uh, Elizabeth Spiegel from Brooklyn Castle. I remember when 
uh, Mastering Chess Strategy came out. I remember her excitedly talking about it. And the reputation has only grown over the years. So um, we've got some questions about how you make such great content, but uh, also just a lot of chess improvement questions for you. But I wanted to begin, Johan. I'd like to hear the story because you mentioned in one of the intro videos for uh your chessable courses that you were greatly influenced by Mark Dvoretsky, um, of course, legendary author and trainer from the former Soviet Union. Um, so I was curious what your like how that came about. Did you just come across his books? Did you have personal interactions? And what what led to that discovery and ultimately the creation of these fantastic books slash courses? All right, uh, let's see here if I can remember. Uh, history. I never met, unfortunately, I was never able to meet uh, Mark Tureski personally, but uh, I was playing some tournaments in Greece. I think this was almost 20 years ago. And uh, those tournaments were often visited by players from the, from the former Soviet Union. And there was one uh, player and also bookseller. I think his name was uh, Viktor Pozarski. He also uh, wrote some interesting chess books himself. And um, he was... Uh, Selling this uh, Dvoretsky, there were four books of, of them in, in Russian. I was uh, fortunate to be able to speak Russian back then. I studied Russian at the university. And uh, I mean, they were rather uh, convenient also, uh, not very expensive. So I bought all of them and uh, I started looking into those books. I mean, I, I had already uh, read a lot of chess, chess books, of course, uh, ever since a kid. I, I would... Uh, read many books, but uh, these books were different because I liked very much the, the, the structure in which Noreski uh, was uh, showing the content, and uh, I was I was looking for some kind of uh, how do you say framework, like some kind of theoretical structure. Uh, how how should chess uh, uh, ideas, chess uh, concepts be, be structured? And I I liked very much his uh, way of structuring the. Um, just play in general. Uh, this was in the first book, uh, Strategy, I think it's it's called simply. It's has, it has some other name in English, but I haven't read the English versions. But uh, yeah, one of those books which uh, he outlines a strategical concept. So at that time, I was giving lessons at the university in Chile. And uh, these books were very helpful for me to structure my training there. So I would base myself on his structure. And um, also, I mean, I like very much the high-quality contents of his books. One thing I like very much is that he's, how can I say, he's very scientific, methodical. He looks at different uh, options, uh, different moves. Uh, his students' uh, comments would often be included. He would say that in this position, Dormatov would say this, Yusupov would say that, and, and so on. And I thought that that was very interesting. And um, yeah, I guess that's what uh, what happened in the in the first place. So. Uh, fantastic examples, uh, I must say, among the best chess books I have ever written, the books, ever read, sorry, the books by Mark Voreski, exactly. Yeah, absolute classics, and that's a great story. So studying Russian at university, uh, we've had a few guests who, they, they began to study Russian because of an affinity for chess. Was that the case for you as well? Yes, of course, exactly, that was the case. And uh, once I, I mean... Uh, after being a teenager, once I got a little stronger, and I would play against uh, players from from the from Russia, from the ex-Soviet Union, I understood that it was convenient to to speak a little of their language. Also, sometimes they would, you know, go over a game, analyze the game afterwards, and uh, of course they would do it in Russian. And also all those uh, books and magazines that uh, 
you could uh, uh, get uh, into in touch with. Uh, for example, maybe you know this famous magazine, 64. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, I was actually subscribing to that magazine. Uh, I, I got it every month. I think there was a new uh, copy. And uh, yeah, it helped me to get better at chess and also... I learned more uh, more Russian. So, yeah, definitely affinity between chess and, uh, and the language uh, itself. And was this when you were living in Sweden? That, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I was living in Sweden. I hadn't yet finished university. I think we're speaking about 1996, maybe, 1997. Uh, yeah, I remember when I played at Olympiad in uh, Armenia, for example. I, I was already able to, to, to speak a little Russian. There. I mean, uh, in Armenia, of course, there is a very good command of, of the Russian language. So, uh, yeah, it was nice to, to speak a little with a, with a waiter and so on. Um, so, yeah, back in those days, mid-90s. Yeah, that 1996 Olympiad in Armenia, um, it's come up a few times on the podcast. I mean, Joel Benjamin told some funny stories about uh, Kasparov having his old private bathroom. And, of course, uh, Armenia was kind of amidst, uh, and he talked about sort of the... Uh, you could say not not glowing conditions of the actual venue and of course armenia was uh you know having some strife at the time um what what are your memories of that olympiad johan no my memories are very bright from this olympiad i mean apart from the fact that i was able to play for my country which was it is tremendous honor to to represent your your country and play against uh, strong teams uh, we had several strong opponents in that uh, in that event i remember we played uh, we played France, for example. Uh, I, I had to face uh, young Etienne Dacrot back then. Uh, we played uh, Spain was strong at that time also, and, and Cuba and other other strong teams. Uh, and the country as such was very very interesting. You could see that it was still in rather poor conditions, but uh, there was a very high cultural level, uh, languages and so on. People were extremely polite. I still remember with. Uh, Grandmaster Tigo Hila Passon, we, we went to play some table tennis there uh, in, in the neighborhood. Uh, it, was, it was great fun. And uh, also, I think one day I got lost in the center of the city and, of Yerevan and a lot of people <laughs> uh, approached me to, to help me to find my way and so on. Uh, yeah, fantastic country. I wish I, I will be able to, to go back to Armenia one day. Who knows? Yeah, likewise. It, lo- it looks beautiful in, in pictures, and I've never been. Um, but let's bring it back to your, your chess content. So um, it's funny hearing you talk about Mark Dvoretsky, because you mentioned, of course, leaning on his material as you started to design materials as a trainer. And that's sort of the legacy that your books have carried on. I know so many trainers who who uh, are so grateful because there's such uh, reams of quality material there. Um, so... I, your first, your first book was mastering chess strategy, or your first of the series. Um, what was the vision behind it? Like, and how how long in the making was that uh, that book, which is now, of course, a chessable course as well? Yeah, I mean that's a long story. Also, uh, it was actually not the first book, but it was the first book which was really published on a on a big big market, uh, so to say. Uh, before I forget it, let me say also, Ben, that uh, one of the great things about Voreski is that. He was kind of anti-dogmatic in his writings. It's one thing that I liked very much. Uh, he would show even examples of other authors who would say this and that, that, uh, that Alekhine played like this and that, and this was, he was winning all the time and he was following his plan. And Voreski was extremely critical. I think that's what, one thing I liked very much about his, uh, his writings, that, uh, that he would always uh, 
check things from a different angle and, and question what existing writings and so on. Just like uh, John Watson, by the way, another very impressive author. I really like his books also. It's, yeah. it's about the same kind of, how can you say, like questioning uh, spirit that you don't believe in what you what you see, you you try to check it carefully. Uh, and another thing about Voreski, I, I should say also that the only, you could say, bad thing about his examples is that they are often very, very uh, heavy for mainstream uh, uh, chess students. And uh, I mean, even for myself, sometimes it, it will be a bit uh, complex and so on. Um, so, I mean, I, I always kept his uh, structure in mind, but uh, my policy has rather been to use uh, rather simpler examples and, and shorter examples. And if I can cover, for example, one topic with 10 shorter examples, I prefer that to uh, two long examples. Because I, I do think that uh, for pattern recognition, it's very useful to, uh, to check several examples. Uh, while his example would, uh, sometimes they would expand over several pages and so on, which is extremely interesting. But uh, maybe for, uh, for learning, for um, applying the specific concepts, uh, it might be better, in my opinion, to have many, several, uh, several different uh, examples. I mean, let's say you speak about uh, good bishop and bad bishop, for example. You might just cover one structure, but if you could cover five structures where this uh, specific topic comes up again and again, uh, that would be more useful for your pattern recognition, right? You will be able to, to spot this situation in a, let's say, French structure, maybe in a King's Indian structure, in, in a Stonewall structure, and so on. Um, yeah, that's about <laughs> Mark Foretsky. But okay, back to your, your question. Um, I was teaching at the uh, University of Tarapacá in northern Chile, and uh, back then... The director of this university, Emilio Rodriguez, he asked me, why, why don't I write a book about, uh, since I'm basing my classes on, on my own material, I wouldn't use a book uh, from the beginning to the end. I would extract examples from different books and check, find my own examples, maybe include some of my own games also. So he said, why don't you write a book? Uh, and they were interested in that. You know, like any university, they like to, to publish uh, uh, they like to, to have publications. It, it shows that they are working, that they are progressing and so on. So I said, okay. And I, we did that. I, I mean, I, I did that. I wrote the book. I thought it would just take a, a few months, but it took a long time to, to finish the book. And so it was published in Spanish uh, at, uh, at this university of, of Tarapacá. And later on, once I went to the Olympiad in, that must have been in Italy. Yeah, the Turin uh, Olympiad in 2006, I got into touch with uh, Jordi Mayem. Uh, Spanish uh, grandmaster or Catalan grandmaster and he had an editorial at that time and he saw the book and he said uh, well why don't we publish it uh, here as well so I changed some things in the, in the book in the original work uh, published at the university and it was then published uh, in in Spain or in, in, in Andorra I think was this uh, editorial Esfera Editorial and after that I don't know exactly how the, how the story continues, but uh, yeah, John Ems at uh, Every Manchester, he asked me if I wouldn't uh, mind writing a book about the Sicilian Khan because he, he saw that I was playing this. I, he's also very good with Sicilian Khan. I think he had, he had written a book, but he asked me if I could write one. So I did that. And then I told him that once the book was published, I told him that actually I wrote this other book in Spanish and maybe you would like to have a look. And he checked that book. And he said it's, it looks interesting. And that book was later on split into three books, you could say. In the first book about mastering chess strategy, like general strategy, and then it was the, 
opening strategy book and the end game strategy book. In my original work, uh, everything was there, but uh, not as uh, uh, not as much volume as in the in the in the three later books. But uh, in the the original book was just about concepts at any stage of the game. The original book in Spanish, but of course it was more uh, suitable to split it into three three books. So so he was basically saying that if the book goes well, if the first book goes well, we can see if we do the second one. And I, I, I told him, maybe we should do the endgame book. But he said, no, no, let's do the opening book because there are so many endgame books already. So it's better to start with the opening book and then we can do the endgame book. So that's that's why the order is like that also. It, it didn't depend on me. Uh, we could have done the other way around, but that's how how it started. Uh, well, I hope that's a, sorry if it was a long answer, but uh, no, no, it's, it's fascinating to hear. It's, it's like the books had nine lives because it started, <laughs> exactly. started in Spanish, made its way to English. Now it's on chessable and, and the, the legacy grows. Um, we had several, I, I took to Twitter because I figured you'd be a great person to bounce some chess improvement and content related questions off of. And we had several questions that I'd like to ask you, Johan, but one I would just kind of like to personally address um, which was uh, several people sort of asked, because your books, I'd say, are firmly in the intermediate category. I would say 1,600 feet on up is where one can benefit most from them. So we had some questions about uh, what, what materials people might study before them. And just for listeners who aren't familiar with Johan's work, uh, his puzzles are tend to be positionally oriented. Of course, mastering opening strategy is a bit of an exception, but mastering chess strategy and mastering endgame strategy, it's sort of uh, more subtle than just like your tactics uh, puzzle um, algorithm online, which is why they're so beloved. And so it's so hard to find puzzles of that quality. But anyway, to answer listeners' questions about stuff that comes before that, um, I mean, of course, I've talked about simple chess and winning chess strategies, and there's Soman's positional chess workbook. Um, but the main thing I wanted to say was that friend of the pod, Neil Bruce, and I are going to do a podcast. Basically, Neil's going to cover that entire topic. Now, Johan, um, I you know, obviously you're a high level trainer. You've worked with Olympiad teams. You often work with strong students. So I don't know if you have any recommendations of stuff that would be slightly less challenging than your material, but I might as well ask you since you're uh, obviously um, a chess bibliophile. <laughs> yeah, of course. I have been reading books since a kid. Uh, I mean, back in those days, the internet was not around and uh, you would have to uh, try to get hold of books. And it wasn't always that, uh, that easy. Uh, I bought a lot of books in my younger years and uh, and so on. Um, so getting back to your question, I remember one of the first strategy books that I read when I was a kid. It's a book which, which I don't think is so common. It's not so well-known anymore. It was called Positional Chess by British, uh, I don't know if Grandmaster or International Master, Talbot, Sean Talbot. Or maybe he's American. I, I might be mistaken. Probably he's American, yeah. Have you heard of that book, uh, John Talbot, the author? Um, no, I, I don't think I have. <laughs> so the, the interesting thing about that book is that, yeah, I mean, he compiled examples from the Russian chess school and so on. So it's not uh, the co content as such was rather well known. But I like the structure that he used. So he had uh, one chapter about the bishop, then he had one chapter about the knight, and one chapter about the rook. And if you check the Mastering Chess Strategy book, you will see that I have a similar structure also. I try to focus on different pieces. Uh, and actually, in the Endgame book, I also do that. Uh, I start with a, uh, with a king, and then I use, go for the pawns and the rook and so on. That was Tol Tolbot's book. I think Tolbot is the last name, yeah. 
of this this author. But then, among other books, I mean, there are many great books. Uh, Yusupov has has great books. Yeah. Uh, I think Ogre had also great books. But I guess Ogre's books are more complex than mine. They are probably more challenging. Uh, John Nan, I think, has very good books uh, about. Uh, uh, there, are, there is this book, I, I remember I used it at university. Um, he goes over the complete games. Um, yeah, understanding chess move by Yeah, movement. exactly. I, yeah. I like that book very much. And also, like you say, Seyderman has, has excellent material, explains very well. Um, yeah, I think there are many books. I'm probably forgetting uh, a whole lot of them. But uh, yeah, these are the, the ones that I, that I come to think of. Uh, great books for structural training. But now if there are more... Easier than mine, I, I don't know. Uh, I would say mine are not that difficult. What I have tried to do is uh, start with simple examples, and then I make it more difficult. Yeah, uh, and the the explanations are very good, so it's certainly certainly helpful. Um, and Johan, we had a lot of questions from fellow chess trainers, FM Nate Solon, uh, John Hartman of uh, US Chess uh, echoed this question. Everyone wants to know how you come up with all this amazing material. It sounds like it's it's a life's work, but is there any <laughs> secret beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I would say you have basically two ways you can you can do this. I mean, you can you can either uh, check what other people have written and you can use their material. Of course, you have to say that okay, this is picked up in Sairavan's book, for example, and so on. Or you can try to uh, look for examples yourself. And uh, I guess that's mainly what I have done because uh, also I thought that uh, if you have a chance to write a chess book, you should try to bring up original material. So. Um, you have to dig a lot into into examples. No, you have to uh, chess informant, for example. People usually associate the chess informant with opening uh, developments, right? Uh, the most important theoretical novelty of this volume, and so on. Um, but I use the chess informants a lot for finding uh, middle game content. Uh, I mean, it's simply once you look into something. I can give you one good, very good piece of advice. If if let's say you're studying some opening variation, let's say the Rosolimo. Uh, with the white pieces or with the black pieces. You check some games and uh, yeah, at some, po- at some point, you know, it's tempting to continue to, to see, see the game. You can see that white has an advantage, but still you're curious about how will this uh, game end and you continue to look at it. And suddenly there appears some interesting uh, strategical situation, maybe some trade that you didn't expect or maybe some pawn move which uh, wasn't in your plans and so on. What I do immediately, I... I Take notes, so to speak. I save it. I mean, uh, I I keep it for the future. I make a note that uh, I should come back to this. So, and then how do you categorize it? Yeah, then uh, I mean, I'm using, I'm still using this program, Chess Assistant. I have been using it for twenty years now. So, uh, in Chess Assistant, I think in Chess Space also there must be such a function. But in Chess Assistant, there is a little field which says note. So I just write down there. I write, for example, Bishop Pair, or, or I write, I write uh, Space, or I write uh, Development, and, and, and so on. Uh, and in this way, I keep track of, uh, of the category of, of the example. And sometimes, of course, it can be several categories, right? You can have, like, at one moment, uh, maybe there is some prophylactic move which you like very much, and later on there is some attacking move. Who knows? There, there can be many different topics uh, involved in, in one game, right? So, yeah, computers are very helpful for this uh, stuff. And again, let me go back to Dvoretsky. Dvoretsky would use his uh, famous card. Um, how is that? Like a card flash system. Flashcards, yeah. Flashcards, yeah, exactly. So he would have a fla- flashcards 
he he writes this in his books, right? He's saying yeah, that. Yeah, legendary Pro, file. Le- yeah. Legendary file. Yeah, for yeah. prophylaxis, I have this uh, a lot of cards. So when Dolmatov had a problem with pro- prophylactic thinking or whoever, no, I think Dolmatov was Dolmatov's problem was that he, he didn't like very short positions, something like that. So Dvoretsky had a card flashcard for that, and then he would uh, uh, give those uh, exercises to to Dolmatov, and Dolmatov would improve in this field and, and so on. So, yeah, that was back in, the, in those years. But, I mean, today it's very easy to manage this with, with, uh, with the help of the, of the computer. So, yeah, I try to – I check a lot of games every week. I, I so download. you just go through them one by one or are you running – No, but, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't do that. I don't uh, – you only have 24 hours in a day. <laughs> yeah, that's but, what we're uh, all Yeah, of course. No, what, what I usually do, you know, um, I like to check games uh, online. I mean, I'm not uh, – don't get me wrong. I'm not in, in the broadcast. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have so much time. But I like to check the games, uh, maybe not the follow chess application. I, I like to, to – on the cell phone, you can check games played in, at any tournament, right? Uh, so in, in follow chess, or you can maybe use uh, – yeah, which is the other one? Uh, chess, chess bomb. Chess bomb, exactly. Chess bomb. Yeah. So you can, there are many of these. Chess 24, I think, also has a great uh, play. It's a great place for that. But I'm using this follow chess. I think it's very practical. So I, as soon as I see something interesting, I, I just make a bookmark. And then I, in the weekend chess, uh, once the weekend chess arrives, uh, I mean, that's another fantastic product. Mark Crowder has made a fantastic yeah. work. Which we, with, we are very, uh, many chess players who are very grateful for that. Great publication. So, uh, yeah, I download the weekend chess and uh, I check my my bookmark game, bookmark games, and that's how I I, I notice these uh, examples. Uh, but also, of course, like, I'm checking other publications, also other books like Chess Informant and so on. The Megabase, Chess Plus Megabase, another great source of information. Uh, I think sometimes people f- forget about this. Maybe they, yeah. they they prefer to see some video or. or maybe buy some course, which is not bad, of course, in itself. But actually, the inf- chess format and the chess base megabase, uh, they have uh, outstanding uh, material. Uh, and, uh, I mean, there are millions of games, right? Yeah. Like, like I said, it's not, it's not the number of the games. It's, it's how you manage to accumulate so many, you know, being a, a busy person. Uh, being right, a- right. But, I mean, it has taken many years also. I have done this for 20 years. So once I started with, okay, to be honest, when I started with mastering chess strategy, I really, my goal was to have a lot of examples. So at that time, it's, it's clear that I used a lot of uh, time to find new examples uh, back, back then. And uh, yeah, for sure, you, you can see that there are like 300 ex- exercises, I think, or 200 maybe in mastering chess strategy. So of course, I had to uh, do a lot of digging then. Uh, but very often, like I was saying, when you study an opening, I mean, chess players, we're always busy, right? We're always doing something. We're, there is never complete silence. We're always uh, checking something. So if you check some opening, for example, uh, like this Sicilian uh, can that I wrote a book about, I would come, a lot, come across a lot of uh, interesting uh, situations regarding strategy in the, in the opening, in the middle game, in the end game. Um, so the important thing is just to, to keep, uh, how do you say, to take notes of everything. And yeah. even if you play a game yourself or some students, I also use uh, sometimes students' games because these can be very interesting as well. Uh, and also I like to, to focus on modern games. I mean, of course, Capablanca's games, Alakai's games and so on, they're very interesting also. But uh, after all, we live in the, uh, in the 20, 21st uh, century, right? Or, 
how do you say? So I like to to keep uh, keep myself updated with, you know, the latest game played by by Rapport or Giri or Abu Satorov and so on. Uh, yeah, I like to, to to stay updated. Is there any young rising star whose games you you find particularly compelling right now, Johan? Oh, there are there are many, uh, but uh, yeah, to single out uh, one of them. I mean, Firusa is very impressive to to all of us, right? Yeah, of course. Um, but this guy from Uzbekistan, uh, this new generation of Abdul Sator, of Sindar, of uh, Vahid, of th- these players are also very impressive. But I mean, there are many in the US. You also have uh, bright uh, stars, and uh, yeah, all over all over the place. Uh, there are many. Uh, many t- talented players, and uh, from India, for example, yeah, like Nihal, that's another fantastic player. No, he's yeah. so young, he's so so skilled, uh, so patient. Uh, that's uh, that's another great player. But I mean, the, the list is countless. There are so many strong, strong young young players. Uh, I guess somehow technology ha- has helped them, right? Yeah, it for has, sure. It, it has been helped them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also t- t- tactically, they are very very skilled, extremely. Extremely skilled. Uh, you can see that uh, they are universal. I mean, they dominate uh, everything. But uh, yeah, for sure, tactics ha- has uh, has become stronger thanks to all these resources, amazing resources online. Excellent. Well, Johan, uh, we've got some more questions related to sort of uh, how to use your co- your courses slash books. But first, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Listeners, I just got an update from aimchess.com, and unfortunately, I'm still behind on the clock 72% of the time. Working to get better, progress is not just a straight line upward, but I am getting better in the other aspects of your game, which aimchess can measure, which are openings, tactics, endings, advantage capitalization, and resourcefulness. And of course, aimchess automatically gathers your games from the major chess playing sites to give you actionable insights and even quiz you on tactics that you may have missed during your game. So please go to aimchess.com and check out the product. And if you do decide to subscribe, use the promo code perpetual30 to get a discount on aimchess.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And, and Johan, we have a question from the aforementioned friend of the pod, Neil Bruce, asking... And he's going to be talking about your books. He's recently gone through them. He's um, a dedicated amateur player who spends a lot of time using the aforementioned flashcards. Um, and he, he asks if one should take a different approach to your books for a different rating range. Like, obviously, because of the, the nature of the content, it's helpful for a wide range of players. But if one is less likely to solve it, should one approach it differently? Do you think, Johan? All right. In the first place, uh, I'm very happy to to have that uh, question from Neil Bruce. I saw that uh, he was uh, checking my books, I think, and uh, yeah, yeah, he posted something on Twitter. I think it was remarkable. Uh, we have to understand also that uh, these books were written ten years ago, and uh, or even more, and the engines were not that strong back back in those days. Uh, even if it sounds ridiculous, of course they were strong also, but not as strong as today. And uh, for sure, there will be one or two or more, of course, more mistakes. 
in this sense. But I mean, after all, the focus on, of the books, it's not to find the best move in every given situation, mathematically speaking. It's, it's more about applying concepts and so on. So I hope I'm excused for, for not, <laughs> not having used the engine at all times when producing the book. Uh, yeah, sometimes, I, I mean, if you have a given position and if I... What, what if... Uh, Kasparov had played that move instead, and you would say, what would White play in that case? Okay, it's very easy to just turn on the engine, and then you will say, okay, knight b5. But uh, sometimes I think the author should perhaps uh, think, uh, put himself in the in the place. I mean, to, to, uh, what would uh, what would I play in that position? And I would, okay, if I play a move which uh, uh, drops the queen, of course it, it's not okay, but uh, I think we should give priority to, to human moves, and maybe that's what you can see sometimes in mastering. Uh, the mastering strategy books. So, of course, for an opening book, it's different. For an opening book, you really need to have the best uh, moves all the time for your repertoire. And also, if you solve tactics, uh, it's clear that uh, there is very often only one possible path. But strategy is a little more abstract. It's a little more about patterns. So sometimes I think we should have this abstract uh, approach. But uh, anyway, I'm very uh, happy about uh, Neil's coverage and uh, that he was able to work out, work through these whole books and the flashcards and so on. Back to this question, I think that um, you can sometimes leave out the, some of the examples. You can do this the easier ones and, and you can leave out, you can postpone for later the, 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 the further examples. Also, I think there is one, one thing that we sometimes forget about. Um, if you study strategy, uh, it's not like you turn off the tactics button, right? right. You, need to, you need to be awake tactically. If you have difficulties, I, I would say chess is a lot about tactics, right? If you have difficulty in seeing the tactical patterns, um, maybe you should uh, work a little more on your tactics and then come back. Uh, strategy will always be, how can I say, easier in, in some way, and more difficult in another way, of course. But um, if you have uh, difficulties in some tactical, with, with tactical vision and so on, um, try to work a little on tactics and then you, come, you, can, you could come back to the book. Uh, if you have to explain every tactical detail in a position, it will take a lot of time, and it will you will not have the same focus on the on, on the main topic of, of a specific example. In the good old books, I mean, you, you can check old books. You can see that uh, commentary is very scarce. There is not a lot of uh, annotations. If you look, Gligoris has a fantastic book about his own games, but uh, annotations are not. Uh, you can see easily that he didn't use a computer for that book. Yeah, now it's so easy. Yeah, now it's easy to if you if you like you can drown your reader in, in variations. But is that really that useful? I mean, it's easy to just turn on the engine and, and let it uh, create the annotations for you. But in the good old days, they wouldn't do that. Taimanov is another of my favorites. Uh, Bent Larsen. Uh, I don't think Bent Larsen ever turned on the engine. And look at his, his comments. Or Botvinnik, to give an even better example, perhaps. But Botvinnik's comments are fantastic. He, he uses so little space to explain things in such a good way. I think also Dvoretsky talks about this. But Vinnick is one of the greatest uh, writers ever, I would say. Um, but, okay, what I'm trying to say is that um, tactics, it will always be present. And uh, if, if this is puzzling for you, uh, that's a different process, right? Work on your tactics. Um, kids, very often you can see that they are very skilled in tactics, but they are lacking in strategy. Sometimes adults, it might be the opposite situation, that they... I quickly understand the uh, topics, uh, strategy topics don't weaken your power structure and so on, but they might be uh, deficient in, in tactics. So you have to work in, in both, uh, both directions. But back to the question, yeah, um, 
I guess uh, you can leave out some of the last uh, examples in each uh, chapter and so on. Uh, since my books were published on Chessable, I think that has been very interesting. I'm very grateful to Chessable also uh, that they were interested in, in the books. Uh, I think it's a very good platform. I really like it, uh, the Chessable platform. And I have a lot of uh, communication with my readers uh, or the students of these courses, so to speak, thanks to the forum. So I can see that this is an issue that uh, several students are asking themselves, how to read the books, how to use the courses, and so on. And sometimes I think that actually students themselves provide the best answers. They provide better answers than, than the authors. Authors are good at, at writing uh, books or courses, but I think students are those who know the best how to actually use them, and they have tricks for this and for that. Sometimes it can be boring to study, right? I mean, we have all been in school and... Uh, studying for your next uh, exam, it can be extremely boring. And I think sometimes chess can also be a bit boring for uh, younger players, especially. They would like to play and, and have fun and so on. So my, I would say that also if you're a little bored, just uh, give it a break, play some online games and then, and then come back. Yeah. What I was wondering, Johan, is let's say that you... That that someone's getting most of your puzzles wrong. Now, of course, one feature of your your books is the the explanations are fantastic. And I've mentioned before, in my opinion, with positionally oriented puzzles, like if if there's a mate if there's a mate in eight and you can't calculate that well, you're just not gonna get it and an explanation isn't gonna help that much. But with positional chess, sometimes it's like when an idea is explained to you, then it makes sense. So you can kind of bridge a rating gap with um, positional puzzles, I think, more easily than uh, than tactical ones. But my question is, if someone just is getting, like, say, 75% of your puzzles wrong, uh, do you think they should stick with it or say, you know what, I'm going to go do a different book and come back to this when I'm a bit more advanced? I mean, the problem is that when you say they get it wrong, it would be interesting to see what uh, answers did they, did they produce. Yeah, because, because, because like you're saying yourself, this is uh, this is abstract. Let's say let's say we have a, an exercise where the right idea is to swap the opponent's bishop. Uh, the opponent's bishop is very strong. We want to we want to swap it off, like like the good bishop and bad bishop and so on. So let's say this student uh, who got everything wrong. Let's say they they did it on move two instead of, of on move three, or or they did it on move one instead of on move two. Maybe they got the idea right, but they didn't execute it in the correct way. Um, I think it's not like white and black. You have yeah. to see. You have to see what maybe tactics is like that. Okay, you didn't see the mate in eight, like you say, and uh, all right, you didn't see that uh, sacrifice coming or whatever. That's more like like white and black. But strategy is more abstract. So um, maybe they notice something else. And and please don't forget that there might be more than one correct uh, solution. I mean, I really tried in, in the exercises, I really tried to come to cover also like secondary solutions. Uh, it's not uh, only one exact sequence of moves, uh, but uh, okay, sometimes that, that might be the case also. After all, like I'm saying, chess is very tactical. And, and if you're going to seize the open file, for example, you have to put your rooks on the open file before they do. The, the opponent does the same thing or something like that. But I mean, going back to your question, I would really have to to see those answers, uh, but uh, it would be interesting. Maybe if you have a concrete example, we, we could look at it together. You can uh, mail, you can send me by email, you can send me the solutions to have a look at 
Uh, which are these uh, wrong wrong answers? Be careful what you look. I wish for Johan. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we, we can start with just one one student to, to, okay. have, to have a look. Sure. Yeah. Else it will be an endless uh, <laughs> endless work, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it shouldn't be that difficult. If I tell you that the topic of this of this chapter is active king, and uh, you don't activate your king, well, in in the exercises, I mean. Well, probably something something is wrong. You you didn't uh, grasp the the main idea here. Or I mean, after all, these are these exercises are how can I say like like directed. They are you already know they involved. Yeah, there's hints. So, yeah, hints. Yeah, I remember there was one one uh, reader who said, uh, "Yeah, I really like mastering chess strategy, but I would have preferred that the first section of exercises it wouldn't be just about the bishop." He said. Because uh, it's too easy. I know that in every position I have to do something with, with the bishop. It would have been better to have like a box of exercises with the different pieces, so you wouldn't know if it's the bishop or the of the rook or the bishop pair or the knight and so on. Uh, I mean, that's a great hint, right? You know that we're in the yeah. section section about prophylactics, prophylaxis. So probably you should play some prophylactic move in this. So if you get everything wrong, yeah, like I'm saying, I can't give a good a uh, good answer. I would have to to, to see those solutions and. Uh, and make some kind of conclusion. That makes sense. Okay, and one more on sort of how to how to tackle your material. Uh, this is from Eko Hadari, um, who, if I have the person right, is based in Iran and said uh, that, that your courses are actually quite popular in Iran. Um, and he wrote, he said, first, I'd like to thank you for your great books. I've seen them and it was recommended to me by a lot of people. But before recording your videos, I never started, before you recorded your videos, I never started reading them. But guess what? The moment I watched the lecture, I was in love with it. And yes, you are right. As you say in the videos, I bought all three video courses on Chessable. My question is, which may sound a bit silly, how do you recommend to read them? I assume it's to start with the first and then I assume it's to go to strategy then. Sorry, just to middle game, then opening, then end game, because I started with the end game and I want to do the opening second and the middle game later. So basically, if you have a recommended order for the three courses. Okay, so thanks, Mr. Hadari, for that question. I'm happy that you have liked uh, so far the, the courses. Uh, I had this uh, question many times in the Chessable uh, forum, uh, which order to, to read uh, the courses, or work with the courses. I think it makes sense to start with the first one because uh, some of the concepts are uh, like uh, prophylaxis and restriction and space and so on. Um, they will actually be seen later on in the other courses, uh, so I think it makes sense to start start with that one, and then uh, you can. I think it's optional if if you continue with the end game book or the opening book. But uh, like I said in the forum, sometimes it makes sense. Also, you can uh, work in a parallel way, like in school, right? You won't do only mathematics one week. That will kill you. It's it's too boring. Uh, you do maths, you do English, you do sciences or whatever, and maybe here also you can. Uh, do it in a parallel way, different processes. Uh, and uh, yeah, that would be my, my my piece of advice. But if you check the forum, if you like to check the Chessable forum for these courses, you will find that there are many students who have come up with very good uh, uh, recommendations and they are sharing their uh, ideas about how to use the, the material in the, in the best possible way. I mean, I'm new to Chessable also. It's, Chessable is fantastic, but I'm, I can hardly call myself an expert on these fields, how to, how to use them. 
Yeah, although you've become a quick convert to chessable classroom, correct? <laughs> yeah, no, the that's a different thing, of course. No, the classroom I can handle very well. I really love the chessable classroom. That's how I like to conduct uh, group lessons. I think it's it's really a great uh, great tool. Um, thanks to David Beaton and his team, they have developed a, a really uh, awesome product. It's very easy to use. But I'm I was referring more to the chessable move trainer, and, and yeah, so of course. I'm, I'm not very well acquainted uh, i mean i understand how to use it and so on um uh, i'm also working uh, together with uh, karen van delft uh, who is a famous dutch uh, chess writer and uh, trainer, his, yeah. uh, trainer and research and so on so he, he has a great book about uh, uh, learning chess also how, how to arrange your 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 chess uh, education and, and so on so we are speaking a little about these topics also uh, one thing, for example, that you can single out, maybe in opening preparation and in tactical training, is very important that the move trainer is it's asking you for all the moves and you repeat them and so on. But who knows? I'm just saying this as a question. Or maybe it's not that necessary to go over each and every move when you speak about uh, strategy, for example. There are some moves which will, which will definitely be more important than others. And I can see that some of the Chesilo students, um, they can get a little annoyed when their move is not... Uh, uh, accepted as a correct move and then they maybe check it with the engine or they analyze on their own and, and they can see that the move is okay and we, we add the move as soft fail. I think this is a great process. It's, after all, it's fantastic. I mean, when my written books, my printed books were published, you cannot uh, fix a mistake in a printed book very easily, right? It's already printed. But here there is some user observation or some user question and the very next day, you have already updated the, the course. I think that's fantastic. So a lot of things have been added. We're adding soft fails, I would say, almost on a daily basis. But I mean, I'm coming back to this uh, usage of the move trainer. It's great. But maybe for strategy, um, it's more complex to use it because it treats every move with the same value. However, um, speaking about strategy, for, for sure, some moves will be more important. And if you get the key move of this example, maybe if the next move is not the most precise, uh, it doesn't matter. You achieved your strategical goal. You maybe you restricted your opponent's attack or, or whatever. And that's the, that's the main thing. Cool. All right. Well, Johan, we've got even more chess improvement related Q&A, but we're going to take one more break and hear from our sponsors. Our friends at Chessable keep dropping new courses. Some of their latest include Play the Open Sicilian One by Grandmaster Miguel Santos. That's got 15 trainable lines that you can use to play against the Open Sicilian kind of one-stop shopping for an opening that can be overwhelming to learn. And friend of the pod, Simon Williams, is out with The Harry Attack, fighting kingside Fianchettos after 1d4, along with I am Richard Palliser. And they've got tons of new stuff coming from Grandmaster Hans Neiman, Linear Dominguez, and the list goes on. And all of their courses, of course, utilize space repetition to help you remember the opening or tactical sequence or end game that you learn. So be sure to go to chessable.com and take a look at what is new. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back. And we've got a lot of great questions, so I'm just going to keep digging into them. This one is from Sir Rooksy. Shout out to Sir Rooksy on Twitter. Um, and he asks, he says, if you don't have a coach, what is the best process for identifying the weaknesses or blind spots in your game that are holding you back? All right. Thanks, Sir Rooksy, for an interesting uh, question. Let me tell you that when I was a kid, I didn't have a coach either. Uh, Sweden uh, doesn't have, or didn't have at least when I was a kid, that uh, coaching culture that you can come across in, in other countries. Or, uh, or even perhaps the same country has changed. But back in those days, it was not very common. You would usually uh, get a lot of inspiration from other players, stronger players uh, close to you in your same team or same club. Uh, I was happy to have, for example, one Swedish grandmaster, uh, Stellan Brunel. He was... Uh, member of my team. I picked up a lot of things from, from him, his way of looking at chess, uh, opening choices and, and so on. But uh, yeah, my only coach, uh, Connie Holst, he uh, taught me how to move the pieces, basically. And then I was on my own. And many wow. Western, I would say many Western players of my generation, we were basically on our own. We didn't have a trainer. We would pick up books and uh, go through our games and so on. So back to your question, how can I identify weak areas in my uh, in my play if I don't have a coach. Well, you could rely on a slightly stronger player maybe in your team uh, where you live, in, in your chess club and so on, and uh, go over your games with this person. Uh, I think they will be happy to, to show, uh, identify some things here or there. Um, but the main focus is really on going over your own games. That's, that's the ultimate expression of your play, right? That's how we can see how we are how we are faring. Uh, your uh, success working with exercises or working with books, uh, it won't necessarily reflect your, your competitive success. That's a di different story. So, I mean, in competitive chess, a, a lot of factors are involved also, the time management, uh, nerves, and so on. So, basically, going over your games, uh, if you do it on your own, it's not that easy to, uh, to identify your weaknesses, perhaps, uh, I would say this is actually one of the biggest functions of a chess coach is exactly to go for the yeah. students' games. Most other things students can do on their own. I would say if you're a student and uh, if you work 10 hours a week on chess, probably if you have a coach, uh, use the coach only for like 25% of the time. The rest of the time you should work on your own. That's how you can get uh, far in chess. After all, this is an individual sport and uh, nobody will be at your side when you're playing, so you have to do it on your own. But uh, yeah, if you don't have a coach... Uh, look for some player um, close to you. And uh, also what I have noticed is that online there are chess sites like uh, like Chessmood, for example, a great uh, website, Chessmood. They have like a forum where they go over each other's games. Uh, they, they get to connect it. I mean, after all, chess players, we're like one family, right? You will yeah. find other people with exactly the same situation, exactly the same needs. Uh, yeah, it has never been as easy as today People from different countries and even continents get together and work on their chess uh, together. So I think it's a matter of simply looking into the resources on, on the web. Maybe Lead Chess, I mean, that's another fantastic resource. Maybe Chess Mood, like I'm saying, and there are probably many other chess.com, uh, Chess24, and so on. It's a matter of, of looking into different resources, I think. Yeah, and Johan, these days, uh, how do you recommend students utilize the game review algorithms? Obviously, they're just staggering um, technology for old folks like you and I. Um, <laughs> right. So do you, do you 
do you advocate using them right away when a game's over or trying to sort of uh, dissect your mistakes on your own without the engine first? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I'm very much uh, old school. I don't really like the game reviewer. I- I'm sorry to say that. I mean, it's very useful to spot some mistakes, but they can also be very misleading. They're telling you that, uh, yeah, on this move, you made a mistake, right? You should have played that instead. They have an algorithm. If, let's say, your position is plus two and you make a move which uh, suddenly you're plus uh, 0.5, then uh, you made a mistake because the evaluation went down. But there is one thing in this sense when we're speaking about engine usage and, and so on. There is one thing I think we should all, all of us, we should remember. Uh, engines are very good at, measure, at measuring a, a specific position. They can tell you that here white is better, the right move is this and that. Uh, I believe more in the moves, by the way. I believe more in the moves that they tell you than the evaluations. I'm not so convinced about those evaluations. They say, well, plus 1.5, but, but if that 1.5 doesn't change, uh, what is it based on this 1.5 if, if they're not leading by a pawn, for example? But anyway, yeah. what I'm trying to say is that the moves, uh, the best moves are shown by the engine, no? but for the engine, all the moves have the same difficulty. There is no such concept for the engine, right? The difficulty with which it can find a specific move. All moves in the specific variations... Uh, if they tell you that here is the best uh, engine play, perfect play, white plays knight c4, black plays e4, white plays knight d6, and so on, that's the perfect engine line. However, for a human, in that variation, one move might be more difficult to spot than another, right? The engine will never tell you that. They won't tell you that, uh, oh, move three in this variation is, is extremely difficult for a human to find. Uh, for different reasons. It might be a hidden move, or there might be many, many other options on the board. That's one of our main difficulty, right? difficulties, right? When we have many options, we cannot navigate, and we get distracted by this or that. Or, or the move takes place on a different side of the board, a different sector of the board. They're attacking on the king side, but the right move is on the queen side, and so on. So that's why I'm a little reluctant to use the, the move trainer. because uh, not, not the move trainer, sorry, the, the engine. The move trainer, I like. The engine, yeah. because... Um, it will uh, give you a lot of uh, recommendations, but uh, it's, I mean, let's say you're plus three. I remember there was a game, I think it was Caruana Mamedyarov. Yeah, and, and Caruana played some, I was accidentally looking at this online, some broadcast, and Caruana played a move, I think he was plus three. He played a move and he went down to plus 1.5. And people were saying, hey, how is this possible? Caruana is almost the best player in the world after Carlson. How can he not play this move? But he played a very practical move. He played a practical move, which made it easier for him to win the game. He didn't play the engine move, but perhaps because he was in time trouble. And the engine move was more demanding. The engine line, I should say, not a move, but a line. Because you have one move, and then you have another move, and you have to see the whole sequence. He found a typical human, more practical choice. And that helped him to, to win that game, even if the evaluation goes down. So I'm saying there is a kind of conflict between engine moves and human moves. But also, of course, we can learn a lot from the engine. It will help us to uh, improve our imagination and so on. It can be very interesting to see how it likes to gain space. For example, you have seen those H4, H5, H6 plans and so on. Uh, Stunning ideas by the engine. A lot of things you can pick up from them also. But, I mean, speaking about everyday training, I think we should be a little careful about that uh, move, uh, that engine uh, how do you say that? the evaluation after the game, the game yeah. review or, or algorithm? Yeah, yeah, the algorithm. You should be you should be careful with that. The worst thing you can do, the worst, absolutely worst thing you can do, turn on the engine and just copy the moves that it's saying uh, to your to your annotation and say, okay, I was wrong. I should have played ninety five. Why? Because the engine says so. 
I think that's not the right way to learn chess. Uh, it's better, I mean, it's better not to play the engine move, but to play some, uh, how can I say, some third or fourth engine choice than to play the best engine move just by copying it. After all, when you're sitting there and playing, I mean, if we're speaking about competitive results, if when you're sitting there playing in the tournament hall, you don't have the engine uh, at your side. So it's important to develop your own thinking. So unfortunately, sometimes people take this uh, in a very, very direct way. If the engine said so, it must be the best move and so on. Uh, maybe for a chess publication, that's correct. You, you would like to have always the best moves. But for applying chess knowledge, um, it's important to have a human touch, uh, to be practical. If, if you're clearly better, you should avoid any very complex variations. So like I told you, this Caruana Mamadiaro example. I think sometimes people forget about this and the engine becomes basically God to us, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and also, one last thing, engines need time also. In very simple positions, it can quickly tell you the right choice and so on, but sometimes they need time. Uh, some player, I don't remember who, somebody said, if you want to find an opening novelty, a uh, good opening novelty, uh, look for some variation where the engine will tell you that white is worse. Yeah, but, uh, Caruana, but, yeah. Oh, Caruana said that. And then yeah, you, this came up recently. Yeah. Exactly. And even if it's just equality, you will put your opponent into big troubles in, in the practical sense of the world, right? Because they have to work oh, out yeah. the variations on the board. So I think it's, it's very double-edged. The usage of engines is very double-edged. When you work on your own games, which I think is one of the main activities for any road chess players, when you're working on your own games, switch on the engine just at the end. When you, just, when you have all your variations already uh, written down, annotated. Then turn on the engine to check variations. Don't remove anything. If the engine says, okay, it's not queen a5, it's queen b6, don't remove your old variation. Just write some note there, Stockfish said this or uh, whatever. But uh, yeah, careful in this sense because uh, it's one thing to look at engines and it's another thing to play chess. Yeah, uh, excellent advice. Yeah, I think a lot about when I interviewed Grandmaster Ganguly, we talked about he's written that he says it's a cardinal sin to memorize a move without understanding it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well yeah, said. But it, it's so tempting, though, because there's, it's there's tempting, always, but so it's uh, unfortunately in chess you will never got to get back to the same exactly the same position, so it's almost useless. Uh, I mean, it's good for for training your uh, visualization and so on, but it's not like they're asking you who was the president uh, of France in the year uh, 1960. Chess is not like that. It's not exact uh, knowledge in that sense. Only in opening preparation, in some theoretical endgames perhaps. But, I mean, the whole middle game part of chess, you will never come back to the same position again. It's almost impossible to, 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 get, to run into the same position. So that's why it's so important to develop your ability to find the moves, not to know them by, by heart. That's, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And hearing you talk about like needing to recall a fact that reminds me of uh, in one of your intros, you also compare it to like how different it is. You, you, I believe you compared it to like, obviously you're a polyglot, speak like five languages or whatever it may be. Um, studying a language or math, you might get tested once and need to recall a fact. But right. after that, you're kind of off the hook. Whereas with chess, you're tested or potentially tested every time you sit down at the board. Exactly. You never know when they will test you for this. I noticed this working with kids, that they, they can have the best grades in school, but when it comes to chess knowledge, you taught them how to, the field of defense in the Rook game, for example. Uh, okay, I understand it. But then one day they get it on the board. I have such an example, by the way, in my, here in Ecuador. I had such, a, at a team tournament, I had one kid who, it was 2-2 and there was one game left. It was five boards. He had to defend with the Philidor's defense. 
Had he defended, we would have tied the match and we had, yeah, we were among the best teams in that competition. But uh, yeah, he, he didn't make it. He played something else. He lost the game and we lost the match. He won't mess it up again now. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best way to learn. To, yeah. uh, you learn by, by playing it on the board, of course. Yeah, and, and, uh, yeah we were not, uh, his teammates were not happy either because they all thought that he would be able to apply Philidor's defense. And I think every coach can tell similar questions, uh, similar uh, experiences about how, for example, they mis- mixed up the move. Or the- that's another funny situation, by the way, about uh, opening preparation. You prepare this or that variation, and um, but like you say, maybe you don't play it the next day. You play it like several months later. And in one position, you're supposed to play in this way. And in another position, you're supposed to play that way, in another line, right? So here you should put the bishop on f5, and in the other variation, it's better to put the bishop on g4 or something like that. Uh, it's easy for students to mess this up because, um, after all, it's, it's uh, something that you can forget with time. Like you forget your maths uh, exams and so on, French uh, exams or whatever. Uh, but chess doesn't work like that. So that's where you need the understanding, right? Not only moves. Move by move, uh, we're not, I think we're not built for that. We're not built for, well, some people more than others, for sure, they can do this. Maybe you remember Doreski was saying that there are two kinds of players. There is the like, scientific player and there is the abstract player, he said. So scientific players, like I think he quoted uh, Gavrikov. Gavrikov, he said, this player should play heavy theoretical battles because he's very good with memory. But myself, he said, Moriski, I am not good with this. So I will play the King's Indian attack because I don't have to memorize a lot. It's much more about understanding. And I think he was right in this. This, this is a valid uh, point of view. Not all of us are good with memorizing things. And like I'm telling you, there is a danger with memorizing moves. It can even go against you. In, instead of thinking with a fresh mind, what should I do with this position? You say, oh, I think I remember that in, uh, in Avruch's book. By the way, great books by Avruch. But Avruch says that here in this catalogation, I should probably sack the pawn on c4. But maybe you shouldn't sack the pawn on c4 in that position. So after all, I- independent thinking, it's, uh, it's the most important thing. Uh, and it's hard to learn chess just move by move. Yeah. Hearing, hearing you talk about sort of assessing your strengths and weaknesses and designing a plan based on it makes me think of, uh, I really enjoyed at the end of mastering opening strategy, how you have um, different tables where like, if you, if you like a certain pawn structure, you can play these openings. If you like a certain chess style, you can play um, these openings. So I don't know, Johanna, if you could give a couple pointers about like, uh, how do we decide if we want to play openings based on structure or based on style? Right. Uh, I'm happy that you like that part, uh, Ben, of, of the book. Uh, uh, I hadn't seen it in many books, but I thought it was something that uh, we should really keep in mind. That Once we're in the opening, we have a choice, right? This is like uh, music or clothes or food or whatever. We can choose uh, ourselves. Everybody has to go to the dentist one in, once in a while, but you can for sure choose uh, which kind of music you would like to listen to. And I would say that openings, is, it's about the same thing, right? There are many different openings. Um, I don't really like this approach. They say that the best openings are these openings. And this opening is not good anymore because Stockfish says that it's not working. Like Benoni, for example. Benoni was very popular back in my days. Now I think Benoni has like a bad reputation because the Indian says that it's not uh, working. I, I don't trust that. If you're g- good with the Benoni, you should play the Benoni. I mean, not only the Benoni, play something else also. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't believe there are bad openings. Maybe some gambits, or so, some suspicious gambits. But uh, apart from that, I think every opening has a right to, to exist, right? So, um, yeah, this table that you're mentioning, 
I was uh, categorizing the openings according to different factors. One of them was, was, for example, open and closed positions. If you like open play, we have, for example, uh, E4 openings. E4 openings usually lead to more open play. So if you like, let's say, open play, you face the French. Uh, playing with knight e2 on the third move, Taras will probably lead to more open play than if you play with knight c3 if, and so on. Uh, sorry. Um, there are other examples. If you play with black, you face uh, d4. If you like open play, the queen's gambit accepted, for example. It's an excellent opening for uh, for that kind of uh, more more open play. And if you look carefully, if you look carefully at different chess players, um, I could give you a little list of players like uh, Rosenthalis, uh, Godena, Italian Grandmaster, uh, my teammate uh, Stella Brunel, Swedish Grandmaster. They have an approach like that. They play more, sometimes more, more open games. You can see that uh, all of them play the Spanish Ray Lopez uh, exchange variation with White on, on occasion, mm. which yeah. you could say leads to slightly more open play, right? And uh, even some end game focus. They like very much to play with the isolated queens pawn. All of them are very good with the Sicilian Rapids, where you end up with the isolated queens pawn. A lot of calculation. But then you have a different school. You can see players like. Um, like you could say, Bent Larsen, for example, uh, if you compare with some modern player, like uh, maybe my uh, compatriot, uh, Tigo Hila Passo, maybe you could take the Argentinian grandmaster, Diego Flores. These players, they like to play with Fianchetto. They like very dynamic play, uh, more complex pawn structures. Uh, it's not the same thing, way of playing like the first group that I was telling you about. It's a completely different story. Then you have some very short players, who like to play like, like let's say, Shirov is, is one, one good example, or, or Anand maybe, they will always play Sicilian, open Sicilians. They will frown at uh, a lap in Sicilian. They will never play that with white, of course. They will play the open Sicilian. Uh, they will play with white, 93 against the French, uh, almost by, by rule. Uh, 92 is too meek for them. They want to have a bigger advantage, so they will always go for, for 93 against the French, to, to give you one example. Uh, they will play the Rai Lopez uh, with white and and, and, but definitely not exchange variation, but they will play uh, the main lines and so on. So it's, uh, if you look at these players, very strong players, but uh, you can see there is a clear preference in their uh, opening choice. Of course, you can also say that you should be able to play everything, but uh, look at the case of, uh, of MVL, Vachel Lagrave. He has never played at Berlin, uh, Roy Lopez, has he? I've never seen him playing with the black pieces, the, the Berlin all the other top players played, right? But he doesn't. So I guess he's not very comfortable with it. He knows that Angie will say that black is okay here. Yeah. But uh, he prefers to play other stuff. He likes the Nidorf more. So I think that's, mm -hmm. about, that's about taste, right? That's about taste. Not everybody can stand to play the Nidorf. There is so much to, to you know, maintenance work to, to check all these and those variations. But other people say, hey, what is chess without the Nidorf? Uh, it's the most entertaining opening there is. I, I want to play Nidorf all my life, they will say. So I think, yeah, it's about a little the structure and the style. You should look into this when you define your opening repertoire. If somebody tells you that this opening is good and the other opening is bad, don't trust them. That's, that's not true. It's, it's a matter of, uh, of defining your opening. Just like you, you like some kind of music or you like some kind of food. Um, it's, it's a matter of choice. So we should exploit that. Later, uh, end-game knowledge or middle-game knowledge, that's, that's generic. All of us have to, to know about such stuff like, you know, uh, working on weaknesses or trades or activity in the end game and so on. You cannot uh, uh, reject that. You have to to know that. But openings, it's where it's a field where you can really uh, define the repertoire. 
depending on your on your choices. But one last thing about openings. I do think that today, since we're so exposed to engine preparation, it makes a lot of sense to have flexibility in your repertoire. So you can play just one opening, but make sure that you can play in different ways. If you play the French, they play knight c3, maybe it makes sense to have both bishop b4 and knight f6 in your repertoire, for example. Um, if you play uh, the Karokan with black, maybe you can play some other opening also if, if you want to have more, more flexibility uh, or, or whatever. But don't limit yourself to one single opening. That will make preparation too easy for your opponent. Yeah, I think as, as you get higher up, that becomes more and more important um, these days. Um, and Johanna, are you okay? We've got another few questions from sure, listeners. Sure, yeah, no problem. Of course. Thank, thank you. This has been amazing. Um, so you touched on this earlier when you were discussing uh, Botvinnik's books, but uh, Richard on Twitter asked, he said, uh, if they're, what game collection books are your favorites? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, the game collection itself is one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite kind of chess books. Uh, I have read many of them. I remember when I played some tournament in Hungary, I was able to buy uh, books by Adams and uh, Anand. I liked b- both of them very much. Uh, uh, and Gligoric also. I remember back in those, in, in 2002, I think it was, I bought some books in English there. Um, yeah, fantastic uh, game uh, collections. Uh, and I have read many others. Like Taimanov's uh, book, I like very much. I we, we were speaking about style, right, uh, Ben? Style in openings. I think I, um, I identify myself a lot with Taimanov. We share several openings. If, I mean, if I speak about myself as a player, so it's very easy for me to um, to to enjoy his works. And uh, and by the way, Taimanov's book about the Sicilian it it became very very important for for me in my chess growth. I got hold of his book in 1992. It was in German. It is uh, Winning with the Sicilian. That's one of the books which has. Uh, affected me mostly because it, he's explaining his love for the Sicilian structures. And when I wrote that book, I understood that I should also start playing Sicilian and so on. Uh, well, apart from that, uh, who else? Bent Larsen, of course, fantastic, uh, fantastic book. Bent Larsen, I think to single out just one book, reading Bent Larsen's book, it's big fun. And also you learn a lot. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, Kasparov's books are very entertaining as well, but they are more complex. No, they are a little more heavy, perhaps. Uh, uh, his books, Karpov's books, also also great. There are so many books. I cannot really single out uh, one. Judith Polgar, I must say, very very entertaining. She had a different approach. She used them also as an instructional book, right? So yeah, you can uh, uh, learn. F- I mean, you can join her on her journey uh, to the very biggest heights of, of chess. And uh, at the same time, you can learn many things. Um, that's another fantastic book, I would say, Judith Polgar's uh, book. That one, you can see that uh, the engine was, was used uh, quite a lot, but, it's, uh, but she uses it in a very clever way. So it's, uh, she's still giving space you know, to her original thoughts and so on. But you can see that it's, it's engine checked. I don't, I don't think you will find a single mistake in that book. But yeah. maybe in, in Taimanov's book um, <laughs> or Botvinnik's book, probably you, you can run into... Uh, a few mistakes there. If uh, that's highly possible, because they didn't use an, use an engine, or maybe Gligoric's book, or or uh, yeah, but Phoenix books. That's that's another fantastic uh, biography. Fisher, of course. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah. Now you mentioned with Gligoric, and I have his book, his game collection too. And like you, I had it back when when chess information was a little bit more <laughs> scarce. And, right. you know, there, there's not a ton of annotations. So how would you compare getting a game collection book as opposed to just 
looking someone up in the database and just starting to play through their games or you, you know even if someone is doesn't have chess base or mega base they can just right. go to chessgames.com and just of course start. of course now, how many how, sorry please go ahead oh i was just gonna no you go ahead so i mean Grigoris uh, or any writer or timanov and so on they will tell you with words what they were thinking at this or that moment they will provide you with key variations i think a game that you have played yourself the only person who can really tell you the truth of this or that game is the one who was playing it right so it, it gives like some some additional value to the game judith polgar also explains very well her way of thinking that uh, i wanted to prepare this plan but first i do that and, and so on uh, so it's not the same thing to to check their games in the mega base or actually chessgames.com that you're saying it's a great resource because you have user comments there right it's like just yeah, yeah those are fun those <laughs> are fun exactly yeah. and like like i'm saying we're all one big family so you will find other people with the same questions and the same observations and impressions and and so on but i think for example uh, about gligorich's book yeah uh, you could probably notice that uh, I picked up some exercises from his books. His his place is very very instructive in itself. It's very clear cut. Um, it sometimes it looks so simple the way he wins his games. I think he says at some moment, "I have played so many games that I don't even remember this game." He says, <laughs> and uh, and yet he produces a very instructive, very instructive game. Um, so I think also the fact that you can see Gligoris, I think he has like two hundred games in that book. Uh, he has many games, and I think that's very positive. And if there are not so many annotations, after all, you and me, we are, I mean, we are thinking persons. We can also analyze a little on our own. I don't know if, if you have done that, Ben, when you were a chess student, but I have in some of my books, I have annotations myself. I have annotated something. But what happens if knight uh, e5 at yeah, this point? Yeah. I have it with a pen, you know, with a pencil. Right, I have, right. I have, maybe you did that too. Yeah, today, I don't know if people do that anymore, but I, I used to do that, and then I would analyze myself. So even if I don't analyze as, as well as Stockfish, of course, it certainly helped my analytical skills. And that's what you need at the board. So, I mean, the fact that you analyze, back to this engine topic, it seems to be endless now, this topic. But yeah. uh, once you analyze without the engine, if you, even if you come up with the wrong uh, assessments, it might be very useful because, after all, you're training your analytical uh, skills. So what I like about Gligor's book is that there are so many examples in, in his book. Uh, you can come across some other game collections when there, where there are few games, but they're very de- deeply annotated. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I will say this as a question. I'm not sure which is most beneficial to you. Uh, if you quantity just, or quality? Exactly. We would always say, of course, quality is better than quantity. But right. in this case, if these are long engine variations, uh, big uh, uh, variation trees, do you think that's really useful for us as chess students? instead of looking at, let's say, Grigory's games, he shows some different uh, ideas and so on, one after another in rather short games. In one page, you can already finish one game. In the next page, you have another game. I must say I'm more inclined to the second second option of quantity yeah. in this case. Yeah, I picked up Gligorich's book uh, back in the 90s because I was a King's Indian player at the time. Oh, right, yeah, of course. He was a big expert, <laughs> of course. Yeah. That, um, that nice G5 move. I don't know if you remember that. There is a very nice King's Indian game with Gligorich. They're attacking him on the, on the king side. And suddenly he plays the move G5. His king is on G8. So the opponent can just take on G5, queen takes G5. But then he plays king H8. And he has rook G8 coming up. That's yeah, one of many nice games. Nimsu Indian also, when he bet Fischer. I don't know if you remember that game. There is a very nice game where he beats Fischer with white pieces. The classical Nimsu Indian game with bishop pair, pawn, strong pawn center. You know, Fischer is... He was uh, way ahead of his time. He was always a fantastic player. So it, 
to beat Fischer, yeah, I mean, in any circumstance, that's uh, a big achievement. Yeah, yeah, fun stuff. All right, and we just have a couple more questions, Johan. Uh, we're going to get into chess culture a little bit. So first of all, all right. we have a question <laughs> from uh, Patreon sub Alex Friedman. Thanks for supporting the pod, uh, Alex. And he asks what the chess culture is like in Sweden compared to other countries. And of course, since you're based in Ecuador these days, maybe you could compare it to, uh, I know you've traveled extensively around South America, uh, the other places you've, you've spent time. Yeah, I mean, uh, I have been away from Sweden for, for many years and uh, I'm pretty sure it has changed. I have been fortunate to be involved in a project where uh, Swedish grandmasters have worked with the most promising uh, young players. So there have been several grandmasters and uh, I had the luck to be one of them. And, and this has made it possible for me to like reconnect with Swedish chess culture. I would say in, in general terms, uh, the Northern European countries, uh, the players, the young players are very... Uh, individual, in, individualist in the sense that they work on their own, they, they do any, everything about, by themselves, uh, there is not a heavy tradition of, of trainers and so on. Um, so we are independent from the, from the very beginning. What I like very much about a country like Sweden is that if I remember my childhood years, there was always a lot of competitions, a lot of tournaments. So when I was a kid, uh, let's say 12, 13 years old, there would be every weekend, there would be a team tournament. We had the, you know, the adult tournament. We had the under 20, the under 16, the under 12. There were different categories. We would meet different teams from, from other cities and so on. That was extremely helpful because we didn't speak about that too much today, but playing is very important, right? Yeah, yeah. about studying, but after all, this is like languages. You have to practice it, right? So I was very, very fortunate that in Sweden, even if training culture was perhaps not that developed back in those days, there were a lot of, of competitive moments. You could find a tournament almost every weekend or some kind of long games. I could play 100 games in a year, which is... Back in those days, there were not double rounds, right? There was no increment. So there would only be one game a day. But even so, I could sometimes play 100 games a year. You can do the maths. It's about a game every third day. And even so, you have to attend to school, right? <laughs> so that was fantastic. That was a luxury, I would say. Uh, so speaking about chess culture, a lot of um, possibilities to play. Uh, young players who study on their own, very independent. Uh, but okay, like I was saying, you will learn from, from stronger players who is around you. Like, like I was happy to learn from, from Stellan Brunel, for example. Joni Hector, another famous Swedish grandmaster. I was happy to be in his team also. Even if his style is, is rather different to mine, I would still pick up important things from, from him and so on. Um, like an um, empiric style, I would say, in in, in Northern Europe, if, I, if I'm able to, to, to like throw all of these countries in, in the same box. Perhaps it's not like that anymore. I don't know. Eastern Europe is different, of course. Uh, much more developed uh, training culture. Every uh, student would have a trainer, sometimes like individual trainer, but often like a group trainer. Uh, they would have like a group of... You could say that, for example, in... What can I say? Like in Ukraine, for example, you could see that all of them would play the same opening because they had the same trainer. Clearly, Europe was not like that. Your best uh, friend at the chess club could play the Dragon Sicilian and you would play the Karo Khan. There was nothing like that. But in those countries in, of Eastern Europe, training was much more developed and uh, they would have like, like teams and, and, and so on. Uh, where everybody would play basically the same thing. Now, what, what about South America? The problem with South America is mainly that uh, there is a huge interest, of course, in, in South America. And, and there are, of course, as many talents that, as elsewhere. You have great players like uh, Julio Granda, for example, who has an exceptional talent. I think uh, T-Man said once that if the board was nine 
uh, squares uh, nine f- nine like, like nine uh, by nine yeah nine by nine exactly then uh, Julio Granda would be the world champion I think he said <laughs> that's an amazing quote wow yes yeah, an amazing quote you can check it maybe I got it wrong but I think he said something like that because he's so inventive Julio Granda so I'm just saying that every place in the world there are talents you can say uh, Asia I mean to today. It's not even necessary to say it, but the best players in the world, some of the best players, they come from from China, from India, from Iran, and so on, uh, Uzbekistan. So that has changed. But South America, the problem here is simply that uh, distances are very big. Uh, it's a big continent, but uh, there are not so many countries, and uh, there are not many tournaments of, of high quality, unfortunately. Most of the leading South American players, at some point, they went to Spain to play over there, or they settled in Europe. You, you can see some, some, or the U.S. Now it's very popular for them to go to U.S. You can see many uh, Cuban grandmasters, for example, they yeah. went to the U.S. To, to to settle there, and that's obvious because, um, I mean, I have heard in U.S. there are also complaints that there are not so many strong tournaments. Europe is probably the best place for tournaments, but even so, the U.S. is a much better place to play tournaments than South America. So that's that's the big difficulty, I would say, with, with South America. As soon as you get to, let's say, 2400, 2500, it's no longer that easy to find uh, good tournaments. But there is definitely the chess culture over here also. But uh, you can see Peru, for example, they have had world champions, the, the Cori brothers, uh, Cori brother and sister and so on. But uh, yeah, safe to say Europe is probably the best place for, for developing as a, as a chess player. And what about uh, Johan? What about day-to-day life there in Ecuador? How do you how do you enjoy it down there? Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I work at the sports federation. Uh, every uh, like uh, province of the country has a has a sports department uh, where different sports are. You're training kids in, in different sports, like you know, uh, soccer or, or swimming, athletics. Uh, combat sports like karate, taekwondo and so on. And chess is also there. So I'm happy to uh, to give lessons every day here on the local local basis. Uh, I have been here for uh, 14 years. Uh, yeah, long time. So uh, uh, that's that's great. Uh, that's a luxury for me to be able to to work with chess so on a daily on a daily basis. And uh, and sometimes there are international events, uh, you know, like Pan American, South American events uh, and apart from that i mean some projects i'm involved in some projects also like like uh, the us uh, cs uh, fantastic yeah, chess cool. academy chess school run by greg shahadi i'm very happy to to be there it's great to to get into touch with uh, young american uh, stars it's amazing i must say they are so young and yet they are so skilled at chess i think that's incredible when i was nine years old uh, i would barely know how to you know uh, give mate with the king and rook and king. Well, well I'm probably exaggerating. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> but no. my skills were very basic at, at, at that age. But, but uh, Johan, imagine how I feel. I, I love watching your archive, which is available on YouTube, all your U.S. chess school lectures. And when you're asking these questions, and I'm often, you know, I'm <laughs> about 2100. So I'm often in the neighborhood of the level of the, the players you're lecturing. The only difference is they're like eight, nine years old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, yeah. You, you, rather, you should rather for you, you you should forget about uh, forget about their age. Also, I think if you play them in a tournament, do you play tournaments uh, regularly? Yeah, I've, I've gotten back into it, so I've been playing. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I think once you play uh, kids of that age, just don't look at them. Just look at the board because uh, yeah. else you will underestimate them. That's the worst thing you can do. Um, yeah, I think that's a very interesting uh, situation that uh, thanks to technology and so on, people start playing chess uh, 
very early, but they developed very, very quickly. And uh, yeah. that didn't happen. So it was not that evident back in, back in my days, I, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, uh, that's, that's great. I mean, in, in, in this sense, uh, yeah. also, I would say the chess world has become like more, I don't know if the right world is democratical, but more globalized, you would probably say. Now you can have great stars from basically any place in the world. Like you had Wesley Sol from the Philippines. I, I mean, Philippines, they have a chess tradition, but it's not compar- comparable to the tradition of some of the European countries. But yet, uh, they produced a fantastic star, uh, Wesley Song, which is uh, amazing to me. Yeah, and um, and one of my favorite lectures of yours that's on the uh, the Chess Dojo YouTube channel is about Ulf Anderson. And one last <laughs> Patreon question was from Shubham Kumtakar, who asked if you could share some stories about your brushes with the legendary fellow Swedish GM Ulf Anderson. Yeah, I mean, speaking about luxuries, the fact that I'm from the same country as Ulf and we were able to play together at, uh, at different tournaments. Uh, that's really fantastic. It, it meant a lot to me. I think all of us, I mean, chess, uh, Swedish chess players, in some way we were influenced by, by Ulf in one way or another. I don't know if that happened in the US. Maybe you were influenced by, by Fischer or in, in Armenia they were influenced by Petrosian and so on. It's Denmark for sure, Bent Larsen. Yeah. Uh, I think there is some, something like that, right? Some, yeah, I some agree, kind yeah. of, so in in Cuba, Capablanca, not not to forget, but in the case of Ulf, yeah, uh, it was fantastic to analyze with him. Sometimes Ulf would not be in the mood to to play; he would make a short row. But then, it, even better, he would be there around to look at your games. Uh, he would look at anybody's games with the same uh, interest, no matter who was playing. If it was the men's team or the women's team, he would always be very interested in analyzing. He would never get tired by analyzing. You can see clearly his, his love for the game. And I think it, it all influenced us. Uh, and yeah, I remember many things from those conversations uh, or those uh, post-mortems. Uh, the way he would sometimes reject the risky moves and uh, he would play it safe and he would say, work on the weakness. That's one of his favorites, you know, to work on this weakness. Or the other one is where, where you... Uh, how can I say, you interfere with your opponent's play. That's another of his favorites, to interfere with, with your opponent's plans. Uh, a little Petrosian, I would say, Petrosian legacy. Petrosian was older than Ulf, right? So uh, Petrosian was probably first with this, but Ulf is clearly the one who, I would say, clearly the player who mostly stepped in the footsteps of, of, uh, of Petrosian. It, it's, it's Ulf. Um, and I can remember, for example, back in Armenia and the Olympia, we were looking at some variation and Ulf would say, OK, this variation, at least I can give mate. So you and me, we will just say, OK, we will finish. But he would continue to look at the variation, even if he, if he, he could give mate, because he would look at some other variation. But uh, yeah, a big love for, for chess, uh, un- uncomparable. And uh, yeah, many, many stories of that kind. Uh, also, he he could you know there could be an open tournament and he would be he had finished his game and he would have a look at uh, board eighty for example he, the tournament maybe had one hundred boards and he would be looking at the game at at, at board eighty where the level of play of course would not be the same as his it would be very, you, you you see what I mean right yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be like the like the worst players in the tournament he would be checking that game but he would be very interested. Uh, that's, a gr- that's great that's and that you, you know what now that I speak about that situation I remember when I played many years ago in Copenhagen a, an open tournament and Korsnoy was around there I was happy to play Korsnoy 
uh, on two occasions. I mean, that's a completely different character than Ulf. They're almost like opposites. Polar opposites, yeah. Yeah, polar opposites. So I remember at uh, one of those tournaments, Korsnoy, for some reason, he had finished early, and I was sitting with a very long game, and I was at board 30, maybe, board 40. I didn't have a good tournament. Korsnoy would approach my board, he would look at the position, and he would like frown or something like that. He would look in a negative way at, at the board. And then, uh, yeah, somehow we, I, I left the board and I would walk around waiting for my opponent's next move. And Korsnoy was there and, and he would say something like, uh, why do you give away your pawns? Uh, he would say, it was an endgame, no? And I, I knew this uh, principle of, you know, active play in the endgame, activity in the endgame. Uh, I wanted to create opportunities and so on. But he told me, why do you give away your pawns? Uh, and uh, I mean, it's opposed to perhaps to this principle of, material, uh, activity above material. But he was right. You, you should also be careful about your pawns. If you check Korsnoy's uh, games, you can see that he was rather materialistic in, in, his, in his games. But that's also positive, of course. Once you're in the endgame, the pawns are, you have to treasure them, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think he, he gave me a little lesson there. I mean, it, this just took, took a few seconds. So we didn't have a long conversation. But uh, I remember that. And n- later... I would remember that, okay, we're in the endgame. You cannot play carelessly in the endgame. It's, it's okay to think about activity, active defense, and so on. But, okay, pawns are pawns. Um, yeah, so. and that's what makes chess so hard, is that on the one hand, you know you've got, you, you have to be willing to sacrifice for activity, but on the other, you have to... That's right. There is a trade-off between the activity and the material. That's very, very difficult. But you can still see here some kind of style uh, and preferences uh, shaping the player, Right. Korsnoy played like that all his life. Um, he, in the middle game, he could grab a pawn and then he could keep it. You can see modern players like, uh, maybe you could see David Anton, for example. I have seen some games, Spanish grandmaster, very strong player. He, he will sometimes also take a pawn and, and then keep it. That's, a, that's an important skill. Um, and okay, with engines and so on, this has become more noticeable, perhaps. But uh, yeah, it's important to be universal, to, to know a little about this and know a little about that. And uh, uh, pick up something from here and pick up something from there. Yeah. Okay. Very last question, Johan. Hearing you hear these stories about, tell these stories about Ulf and Ulf and uh, Korchnoi. Are are there any other stories about like sort of brushes with chess legends that that you hold equally fondly? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it was interesting for me to play Kuprechik. Maybe you have heard of Kuprechik. He was a course, yeah. very strong attacking player from Belarusia. Once I played with him, uh, let's see if I remember correctly. Yeah, I was, I was fortunate to, to, to win against him at this uh, Chess Olympiad in, in 1996. And then I noticed, I noticed another piece of advice. Once you play an attacking player, um, try to play them with their own weapon, so to speak. Uh, attack them instead. So in my game with Kuprechi, if I remember correctly, in some Sicilian, he, he tried to create an attacking scenario. But I gave away a pawn, I think. And so I was a pawn down. But that was not... We were speaking about Korsnoy taking pawns, right? But the Koprecic, that was not his favorite situation. Right. Him to be leading by a pawn. He would very much prefer the opposite. So he was kind of uh, distracted in this situation. He couldn't cope with this situation. It was not... If I would play, like we were saying, about this family of Rosenthalis, Godena, my teammates, Stella Brunel, against those guys, I wouldn't like to be pawned down. They played very safely. But against Koprecic, it was excellent because... Uh, he wanted to attack and uh, yeah, definitely if you're a pawn up uh, it's a different kind of situation. But then what I remember, uh, one year later I played him again and the story was repeated. 
But uh, there was a funny twist to the story. I was playing a close tournament in Denmark. I was chasing my grandmaster norm, but I wasn't strong enough back, back in those days. Uh, unfortunately, I hadn't done a lot. Maybe we could talk about that some other day. But my, I didn't. I played a lot, but I didn't study enough. Later on, I, I fixed this problem in, in the year 2000 and onwards. But this was back in 1997. I was playing too much and I was studying too little. That's another mistake you can make. So I was playing a grandmaster tournament and I was very fortunate. I think I had four and a half out of five. I only needed two, two points more to, to, to score the GM norm. And, uh, and there I had, I think in that tournament I had Betko Prejcik, or maybe it was another tournament. But anyway, what I wanted to tell you, there was a, uh, another Belarusian grandmaster, uh, Kovalyov, Andrei Kovalyov. There are two Kovalyov. No, this is not, uh, there is another Kovalyov who is stronger today, Vladislav Kovalyov. He's very, very strong. But Andrei Kovalyov is also strong. King's Indian player. You should be perhaps uh, acquainted with him. Yeah. So, but he had, back then he had a drinking problem. So he would drink, uh, that's another facet of just professionals now. I think nowadays they're drinking less than, than back in those days. But okay, so he was, he was drinking and he was having an awful tournament. So I was playing Kovalyov with white pieces, I think in round six. I was going for my grandmaster norm. If I could win that game, the norm would be basically mine. I would just need like a draw or something, two draws maybe in the last three games. So I got there, I was playing with white pieces. I had prepared my Petrosian, King's Indian Petrosian system against his King's Indian. But to my horror, when I, when I get there, I see him sitting at the board and he's, uh, next to him there is a glass of milk. So that day he was drinking milk. He, he wasn't <laughs> drinking uh, any more uh, noble beverages anymore. He was yes. drinking milk. So he was completely sober. He just, he just crushed me. I was, you sure it wasn't a white Russian? <laughs> yeah, he was white Russian, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he was, no, but they told me then at this tournament, he was drinking milk. That the organizer told me, yeah, he was fed up with his bad results and he said, all right, no more drinking. Now I will get serious and I will show that I'm a grandmaster. So when he was probably thinking, uh, he just wiped me off the board. It was a horrible loss. And uh, I wouldn't make the GM norm uh, in that tournament. I, I didn't make it. I learned a lot, uh, but uh, yeah, I didn't get the norm. So that's uh, that's about the Grandmaster uh, Andrei Kovalyov. Yeah, he he showed his. Uh, there were stories about him. He was one of the best, I think, twenty best players in the world at some point. Uh, wow. So yeah, you should always uh, uh, you should never underestimate uh, anyone. And yeah, that's that's important. Okay, well, well, Johan, amazing stories, and like you say, I'd like to hear some more sometime. But we've we've kept <laughs> you long enough. This has been amazing. So thanks so much. Yeah, um, thanks to you, man. It was been yeah. a pleasure. Yeah. Um, and uh, what's the best way? Do you have any any new courses coming? Anything that people should should check out from from you? Or I mean, obviously, your your current uh, books and courses could keep chess uh, enthusiasts busy for a long time. Yeah. Right now, I don't have anything. Uh, let's say uh, uh, under. Uh, uh, development, but um, yeah, maybe I should write something, something more. Maybe for for Chessable. Uh, I can see that there has been a very positive feedback and so on. So maybe I should try to find somebody. Asked me if I w- wouldn't I publish some opening course, but I think it's difficult uh, for me to to publish an opening course. Uh, I'm not an expert with the engine usage and so on. And there are so many great opening courses. Like every day, maybe you saw yesterday. I think uh, Lenier Dominguez published yeah. yesterday a course about. Uh, the semi taras and so on. There are so so many great books there. So probably if I publish something, it won't be about uh, about openings. It will be about something else, more strategy oriented. I'll, I'll think about it. But uh, meanwhile, I hope to continue with the uh, with the USCS uh, 
lectures and uh, and there is also a li- little project on chess.com about chess structures uh, yeah i saw which, that uh, it looks great yeah. oh you, you have you have seen it uh, yeah so it's uh, okay i'm happy to hear that uh, i think the level is slightly lower right it's slightly more the d- d- digestible for for the chess audience, these videos, it's about chess structures. Uh, and there are some exercises. As you know by now, I, I like very much the uses of exercises. So um, there are, um, uh, after each uh, block, there is, uh, after each video, there are some uh, there are some exercises. T- together with Jeremy Kane, we have been developing those those exercises. Cool, so, yeah, um, shout out to Jeremy. He was on the podcast recently. Oh, right, yeah, nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I hope to, to continue a little here, a little there, and uh, who knows, maybe there will be some, some course or some book in the future also. Excellent, sounds good, Johan. And last thing, um, uh, I know you're a busy guy. Do you, do you, are you taking any individual students if anyone's interested, or are you pretty much booked right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much booked, but uh, okay, it's it's always a, always a possibility. Sometimes you have students for for. Do you do coaching also, Ben? Uh, just a little bit. So sometimes you have students who work with you, but then they have other occupations or or maybe some other change uh, in their situation and so on. So yeah, uh, it's I think it, it's possible. Uh, okay, and you can find info. my yeah my info. You can find it on in my chess.com profile. I think uh, it's the easiest way. Okay, yeah, and I'm a big fan of yours, Greg Shahadi, always a, a longtime advocate of yours. So if listeners are looking for a coach, uh, you you can't go wrong with Johan. Um, <laughs> all right, thanks. Johan, thanks so much. This has been amazing. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks to you, man. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.